When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And in the book, I do give a little bit of a probate prescription kind of highlighting where the evidence has been. Um, you would then go, okay, so there has been some evidence. What sorts of probiotics have shown a benefit? So you identify the type of probiotic, which we call the strain. Um, and then the other thing you need to think about, well, what dose did they give to have that benefit? Then what duration? How long do I need to take this before I should start to see a benefit? And also how you should take it. You know, should you take it on an empty stomach or with food, etc. So what I recommend, and I've given those prescriptions in the book, is really just reflecting the clinical trials. So you're kind of just repeating them because they're the ones that have shown the evidence. So why wouldn't you instead of just taking a stab and duck? Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. And my guest today is Dr. Megan Rossi. Yes, she's coming back for a second instalment. She's been on before talking about all things related to gut and fiber. So I highly recommend you listen to that episode from the very first season of the podcast over two years ago now. But for now, if you don't know, Dr. Megan Rossi is the gut health doctor, a registered dietitian and nutritionist with an award-winning PhD in gut health. And she's also a leading research fellow at King's College London. And she has just published her first book, Eat Yourself Healthy. On today's pod, we talk about so many different things, including the difference between the microbiota and the metabolome, food additives, as well as step-by-step guides as to how she deals with people with bloating and all the other common gut-related issues in clinic. It's great to have you in the kitchen. Pleasure to be back, although uh, not in this kitchen, new kitchen. I know, new kitchen, yeah. new kitchen, everything. Um, this is your second time on the pod. Congrats. Should you call me like an expert? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're one of only, I think, three people that have made a second appearance on the pod. That's a title I want to keep. I know, right? Let's keep that number down, please. Let's keep that number down, exactly, <laughs> yeah, totally. So, today I'm going to be making a modified uh, recipe from your fantastic new book i absolutely love it the gut health doctor eat yourself healthy i think it's really really good we're going to be doing a chia jam um and you've got some lovely goodies as well yeah right? yeah, yeah. Some, some show and tell for you guys <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um uh, i'm going to be making it on i'm going to be putting it on some toasted bread as well so this is a bread recipe that's not mine it's from my new roots i don't know if you've heard yeah, of it yeah, yeah. 
the, the life-changing yeah, yeah. bread. Yeah, so it's just combined oats, um, some hazelnuts, flaxseed, psyllium husk, all gut-loving ingredients. Diversity, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but that is key. Oh my totally. God, I can't wait to get into yeah, it, yum. Yeah. So I'm just gonna uh, slice this um, and put some on. I don't have a toaster in this place. Can you, can you believe that? I know. I, know I think toasters are overrated. <laughs> <laughs> You know. And this is um, this is quite small as well, so it probably probably would fall in the cracks of their toaster as well. So I didn't finish the recipe. So this is um, I'll link to it in the show notes. But basically, it's um, all those ingredients mixed together with a bit of coconut oil, some um, some chia, and then you let it set, and then you basically bake it for around forty five minutes. Um, let it cool down then you have this like amazing loaf and I mean I would go through this entire loaf in one sitting to be honest it's, it's, it's really, really tasty really right delicious. well you've talked it up so yeah that's I know, I know. Not I don't burn it, so just keep an eye on that my job I'm yeah 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 <laughs> Okay, so your chia recipe, um, you stew some apple. I, I know, I've seen you do one on Instagram where you stew apples. Yeah, yeah, but this one is just a mix of berries. Exactly. Um, I often use blueberries, particularly the small ones, because yeah. the, the small ones actually contain so much more antioxidants. Yeah. Um, again, a lot of them are really good for the gut bacteria. Yeah. Um, and then add in a little bit of date just to increase the sweetness. Mm -hmm. Just simmer it on the um, pan yeah. and then let it kind of form this gel consistency. Yeah. But then you add the chia seeds. Yeah, cool. Which so really do help. I'm doing it slightly differently. So I'm using... I'm all about adapting recipes. Yeah, yeah. So frozen uh, frozen berries that I've just got from, you know, your, your standard supermarket. Yeah. Um, a lot cheaper, maintains a lot of the nutritional content. Mm -hmm. Mixed seeds, uh, some chia mix. So uh, Sorry, not chia mix, chai mix. So this has got cinnamon, nutmeg, mm. a little bit of ginger powder in as well. It's really, really good. You can buy them in most supermarkets now. Maple syrup for sweetness instead of uh, the dates that you used. And then I'm going to add lemon. Although I would just say we should probably use the whole dates. Yeah, the whole fiber in. But you know what? I'm not going to judge you, Rupee. Let's go with your plan. No, I get dates, okay. <laughs> the rest is amazing. I love all these other adaptions. Good, good. Um, orange juice, lemon, a little bit of water, chia, obviously, and just let it set. And then that's, that's all I'm doing. And then I've got one pre-made in the fridge from right. yesterday. So that's just another way of making jam. But I, I, I think your recipe is great, particularly uh, as you can use sort of like stewed apples and stewed harder fruits and pears. And that kind yeah, of and the thing is you don't need a whole lot of ingredients. Exactly. Um, you know, it should be something quick because, you know, unlike you, you're an amazing chef. No, I'm a not. novice cook, so <laughs> I'm just all about the quick convenient. Okay, whilst I prep this, tell us what's been going on since the last, it's been two years since you've been on my pod. Has, which, yeah. oh, has, it's absolutely flown. So I yeah. think when we first um, got chatting, it was when I just really started in the world of, I guess, public engagement, social media. Um, and yes, from that, so many things have happened. So obviously the book um, took up a lot of my life. Yeah. Um, it has been for a while as well, hey? Yeah, look, it's it's been a, a slow burner because I was continuing full-time research. Yeah. Um, and I also am a little bit OCD, so I had about 20 of my clinical colleagues like review every chapter with a fine tooth. Yeah, I know it's like Whelan and uh, Yao, I think, and there's a couple other people that you mentioned in the book. Yeah, and yeah, I was yeah. like, oh wow, um, a lot of people read this. Yeah, just because I, I don't know, like a lot of the things in there is like a protocol which you know hasn't been published before, and I'm all about the evidence base, so I wanted to make sure it was peer reviewed. Okay, and yeah, I also uh, started the Gut Health Clinic, so um, a team of gut health researchers who also work in clinical practice on Harley Street. 
So we deal with people with gut issues, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, but also people who just want to, you know, make the most out of their gut. And also, um, because there's, you know, more and more research coming out in the space of the gut-brain axis and how we can actually help our mental health by looking after our gut health, um, I've actually started to get a lot of more patients who, you know, have mental health issues. Um, yeah, okay. so it's, yeah, it's really exciting. Because I noticed um, one thing I love about the book is that you've got a lot of patient uh, anecdotes from clinic in there as well. And one of Obviously them Obviously all de-identified. All de-identified, <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got this image of like Dan from the book, like, oh my God, oh, what history is it? Why did you do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I think that adds another dimension to this book, which is distinct from anything else that's out there, because it's it's you know combining the evidence base with the anecdotes from clinic, as well as like some usable tips for the user, right? Yeah, because you know. I've come to appreciate that science for many people isn't overly exciting and um, you know enticing. So I wanted people to be able to relate to the evidence uh -huh. and how I did that, hopefully successfully, yeah. Um, was yeah, sharing some patient stories um, yeah. to see how they were able to translate and actually you know really get the most out of their gut, which is like this you know inner organ or inner universe of potential, I like to call it Rupi, a little bit lame, but that's no, what I, I truly believe. Lame at all. No, that's brilliant. And so so you mentioned um, Mental health. So we actually had uh, F Professor Felice Jacker, um, the lead author of the Smile Straw. Literally, that you my favourite study. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And she's great, and she's Aussie as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, all the good things come out the of this room, like exactly. your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, are you noticing that a lot more people are coming to you t with mental with mental health issues because they know that there's a gut connection there? As yeah, well? absolutely. And I, I think on that um, that note, though, it's really important to. I guess highlight that if you do have mental health issues it's not just cure it with diet all the time you know some people do certainly have you know hormone irregulations and they certainly you know for some time in their life need to go on some medications um, so I think that's really really important for people to understand but yeah that you know the research is really quite strong to show that diet as an adjunct therapy yeah. so an additional therapy for those who have quite severe depression and I'm a big believer you know in earlier stage um, kind of mental health issues, we could actually probably prevent people needing medications if they start to, you know, look after their gut microbes by things like their diet, lifestyle, sleep, stress, yeah. etc. Absolutely, and I, I noticed like um, one of the uh, uh, anecdotes, one of the patient stories there was one a patient who'd already been started on antidepressants by their general practitioner, and then, like you said, as an adjunct, when changing some of their dietary things and some of their lifestyle. Uh, factors as well you're able to potentially get them to come on to a lower dose of antidepressants yeah. at least right yeah absolutely and again always done with their healthcare professional their gp yeah. um or their psychologist the psychiatrist yeah. um because it is you know risky business when yeah. it comes to mental health and i don't want people to go oh, i'm just going to drop all medication go completely yeah. natural because they can really have a low point um, yeah. so it's all about safety but yeah power of food and nutrition is huge yeah Obviously, you know that, which is why you've converted um, half of the medical world. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more of us out there. Hey, all right, this is going into the fridge. So I've right. just put everything in here. So frozen berries, the mixed nuts and everything else. And this is just going to defrost, essentially. Yeah, give it a good smell. There's oh, yeah, the good. chai mix oh, in there I as really, well. I think I'm going to love the um Yeah, the, the lemon, lemon yeah, and yeah, the, the orange. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Mm. It adds a little bit of sweetness as well. And you might have shown me up with my recipe. No, no, of course <laughs> not. This is just adding a few extra bits. 
Because um, I think like the simplest way is the best way to start, and then you could be experimental with it, Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, so yeah, this is what it looks like afterwards. Oh, so you can is... see the chia uh, has sort of like become a lot gelatinous, and it soaked up a lot of those juices from the uh, lemons and the orange, um, and give that a smell as well. Yeah. It's got like the smell. Um, yeah, that is that's a winner. <laughs> oh my goodness, yum. <laughs> So tell us about your goodies that you brought in. So you've got the so, live yogurt. Again, another recipe from your book. Yeah. So um, in the book, I just show how people can actually make their own live yogurt, literally by getting a scoop of some live yogurt they bought from their lo local supermarket, putting in some more milk, and then putting it in the oven just for a short amount of time at a really low uh, temperature. And they kind of grow their own microbes. And what the um, microbes do, so the bacteria can actually eat some of the, um, the lactose, the milk sugar, uh -huh. and then produce some of these organic acids, which are thought to be really beneficial for us. And it gets quite creamy, um, a little bit tart, which is why I always combine it with the chia um, jam to yeah. add it in. And it's a su super easy thing to make, but what I'm really passionate about um, is actually kefir. Yeah. <laughs> As you know, you've probably seen. Um, now, I think, you know, a lot of people kind of go, oh, is this just another fad? But it's true, the scientific evidence isn't overly strong for um, fermented foods. In fact, our research group just published a paper and showed that there is a little bit of evidence. Kefir probably has the most evidence out of all fermented foods. Oh, really? okay. Yeah, but um, it's, it's not that strong. Yeah. But anecdotally, um, you know, ancestors have been associating with benefits for you know, thousands of yeah. years. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's super tasty, which is why I guess I actually got into it because of the, the taste element. And then I thought, oh, you know, I might give myself a bit of a gut health experiment yeah. at home. Yeah. Um, so in here, I'm not sure if you're able to see it, but you can see like these little cauliflower things. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so little brains. Yeah. So you can't actually, that's not actually the microbes. So microbes are invisible to the human eye. Uh -huh. But like a spider builds a web, these microbes build these little cauliflower things uh -huh. to live in. So in here, there's millions of these microbes. Uh -huh. Bacteria, including yeast, and many yeasts are actually beneficial, although people kind of freak out about it. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, some um, yeast are super beneficial. We all have yeast in our gut, which look after us. Um, so all you do is pop this in some milk, leave it on the bench, so out of the fridge for about eight hours, depending on the temperature. Uh, and then literally in the morning, you have kefir. You just strain out the grains. Yeah. Um, and then the bottom of it, you've got this fermented milk. And then you put the grains in some more milk and literally as simple as that. I've noticed on your Instagram, you put the uh, kefir grains and the actual pots in, near your heater. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Because they, they prefer to live in around, or they ferment best around 25 degrees. Okay. So obviously London's not always 25 yeah, yeah. degrees. That's right, maybe. So yeah, I put them near that so it warms up and, and it helps them ferment that little bit faster. If it's okay. too cool, uh -huh. they actually go to sleep, which is why if you, you know, going on holidays you always put your grains in the in the fridge, fridge okay. um, to kind of and you've got um, a, a plant-based version yes as well, right? and there's also water kefir um so again you can see these little clear grains so these look more translucent i should have probably done that with the milk so grains. how do these um how do these actually stay alive then if they what's the sort of source of energy food? yeah so for the kefir it's the lactose milk sugar which is why if you put these grains in a plant-based milk without lactose they won't survive uh -huh. they'll die uh -huh. 
Whereas these guys here survive on things like um, glucose and sucrose, so like normal table sugar. So to actually make this, you just have some sweetened water um, and you uh, put a little bit of lemon in to get a little bit of an acidic environment. Um, and then every couple of batches, you'll add like a fig to give some more nutrients um, to these microbes, but they mainly ferment and eat the um, sugars. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Fine. And then again, they, they produce the um, different range of organic acids and um, some of the waste product is the gas, which is why it gets really quite fizzy. Okay. In brilliant. fact, I've had a massive explosion in my house. So <laughs> I think the water kefir is a little bit more of a, a risky uh, one to make if you're not as experienced. But the, the dairy kefir, it's super easy and it's less hazardous. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to get you to help me with making these um, for the team. So we have that bread that I've just dry toasted God, on a pan. Amazing. I know, yeah, they're yeah, delicious, totally right? Um, and the recipe for this is going to be on the show notes as well. So I can't claim uh, ownership of this recipe. It's just, it's definitely nothing that I could have come up with myself. Um, do you want to dollop some of this yeah, on yeah. top as well? Let me get you a spoon. This is super exciting. This is the first time I've actually got a guest to bring in stuff that we're using. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't help myself. Like I said before, my mum's a science teacher, so I'm all about the show and tell. Yeah, yeah. Now, to get this a little bit extra creamier, I added some more milk powder okay. um, before I put it in the oven, so uh -huh. it's nice and thick. And for those of you listening to the podcast, you can watch this oh, on yeah. YouTube as well. Like, I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah. I always watch cooking shows though and go, God, can yeah, you send this I like know, yeah. through the TV? Yeah, and now I'm finally yeah. on one. It's like the best what? thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this is going to be the first of many, trust me, I'm sure. Okay, so I'm just going to dollop this on top, right? Is this how you would have it? Yeah, I, I usually would have it in like a little pot, the oh, yogurt, yes. and then add a teaspoon as like a snack on the run. Gotcha, um, yeah. But yeah, love a bit of um, a, mixed seeds and um, hazelnuts and oats absolutely. in your recipe. So, And I'm sure you'd use a, a suitably hipster-like uh, pot as well. Yeah. Non-plastic. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Show off on the tube to everyone. Do you want to grab, the, do you want some knife and fork or are you just going to? I'm Australian. Okay, go. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case anyone yeah. hadn't realised. <laughs> Are you calling me bogan? I'm going to try this as well, actually. I'm super looking mm. forward to this. Wow. Okay. That sourness of the yoghurt is delicious. That's yeah, amazing. matched with that little bit of sweetness mm. from the berries. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's great. And the herbs and spices awesome. And the loaf. It is really moist, surprisingly. Yeah. It looks kind of dry, but... I know, yeah. It's got some oils it. in it. When you dry toast it, it kind of comes out. Okay. Mm. How was your, how was the bread? Yeah, it was super tasty. Yeah, good. I really love the I, extra spices you've added to. Oh, nice. Good, good. Um, for book two? Yeah, So the process of you writing this book has been very long. I remember the last time we spoke, um, you were about to start a trial uh, on food additives. Yeah. Grant for that, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So looking at different types of food additives, particularly in those um, who are genetically susceptible to getting things like inflammatory bowel disease, mm -hmm. we think they might not be that great. And if you look at the food supply, they're found in like 30% of the foods we eat. Yeah. Um, so, so it's a super important trial to Really, do, really important. It? And it's actually the first, I guess, large clinical trial that's ever been funded looking at diet mm -hmm. in inflammatory bowel disease. Historically, it was kind of thought, you know, Inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, is really just drugs. You know, this is 
the way we have to work it. But a lot of patients now have been advocating that they want to know more about the diet because yeah. a lot of them think that there is some link there. Absolutely, um, yeah. So yeah, a charity from the US actually funded the grant. It was like 1.2 million. So it's That's massive sick. clinical yeah. trial for, for diet anyway. Yeah, and very much needed as well because I think like you said, um, particularly from your experience in clinic now, I, I guess you're getting a lot of patients coming in who feel that they have reactions to certain foods that they're eating and I love the way that you've tackled this in the book because you use some incredible diagrams and lots of like you know the chapters themselves are just so informative tell me about that process because it, it must have taken ages and you already told me before that you overwrote by like a huge margin so. 300 pages <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess a lot of the the flow diagrams that kind of personalizes the nutrition is really just was a brain dump from what I would do in clinic because I wanted people to get that personalized kind of feel and because that's the only way essentially you really get the best um, you know recommendations and the best strategies is when it's personalized to individual but of course I can't see everyone in clinic I don't have enough time um, and I don't want people to have to pay for you know a private dietitian which is certainly not attainable for everyone you know growing up I certainly couldn't have afforded it um, so I wanted the book to have that personal feel so yeah a lot of the ideas were just things that I would go through in my own head when I'm seeing a patient right there in front of me I've just written it down in a flow diagram yeah yeah and you said that um, you got a lot of your peers to sort of review the diagrams and review the information so it was peer-reviewed yeah, absolutely. I was a little bit anal about that because, you know, a lot no of... pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> There'll be plenty of puns in this one, don't you worry, Rufy. Um, yeah, just because a lot of, you know, a lot of the pathways were my own clinical insight. It wasn't yeah. necessarily a published, um, yeah. you know, guideline. Uh, so yeah, getting them to review, I think it was like over 20, um, mm. with a fine tooth comb, a lot of challenging, um, which I loved and then tweaking things accordingly. So yeah, no, I am really proud of, of what's come of it. Yeah, and, I, and you should be, because I think it's gonna be super helpful for people. One of the things I loved actually was on page 55 from memory, oh. um, was the probiotics, how to choose your probiotics, yeah. a little, little sort of flow diagram. Yeah. I get asked about that so much in clinic, in A&E as well. Yeah. Can you summarize that for us, yeah, like yeah. That, that little section? So I think it's really important to firstly understand what probiotics are. So probiotics are certain types of live microbes, mainly bacteria, but not all. There are some yeast probiotics which um, are shown to have a benefit. Now the thing with probiotics is that there are thousands out there mm. and each different probiotic actually does different things. We need to kind of think of it like, you know, vitamins. If you've got iron deficiency, you're not going to go and take a vitamin D supplement and think, you know, you're going to cure your iron deficiency. The same with probiotics. Mm. Each one is actually different, which is why I've written the, the process. And if you do, you know, want to improve some sort of symptom, first you need to see, is there any evidence? Has there been any trials showing there's a benefit? Mm -hmm. um, so things like mental health, you would then um, firstly, yeah, determine whether there has been any evidence. And in the book, I do give a little bit of a probiotic prescription kind of highlighting where the evidence has been. Um, you would then go, okay, so there has been some evidence. What sorts of probiotics have shown a benefit? So you identify the type of probiotic, which we call the strain. Um, and then the other thing you need to think about, well, what dose did they give to have that benefit? Then 
what duration, how long do I need to take this before I should start to see a benefit? And also how you should take it. You know, should you take it on an empty stomach or with food, etc. So what I recommend, and I've given those prescriptions in the book, is really just reflecting the clinical trials. So you're kind of just repeating them because they're the ones that have shown the evidence. Yeah. So why wouldn't you, instead yeah. of just taking a stab in the dark? Exactly, yeah. Which so, is what a lot of people yeah. are doing these days. They're just like, oh, I bought probiotics. What probiotic did you buy? Uh, uh, I, I don't know. It's the same thing. I, it's quite frustrating, actually. I, sorry, I don't get my high horse about this. No, but I when I ask patients about uh, what antibiotic they had, they literally can't remember. In a lot of cases, they can't remember. Yeah. And that's just, it doesn't give me any information yeah. whatsoever. So it's the same thing with probiotics. It really is. And it. I kind of feel sorry for probiotics because it gives them a bad name in a way because people are like, oh, it didn't do anything for me. And I'm like, well, you probably just didn't take the right one. Yeah. Now, um, it's true that if you are generally healthy, then you don't actually need to be popping a capsule every day. You know, I recommend just getting some fermented food in your diet, things like the kefir, the kombucha, kimchi, etc. Not a lot of evidence for it, but I think it's tasty. Include it. Why not? Mm-hmm. It could have a benefit. Yeah. Um, Whereas there are some indications where there is good evidence. So the one with the strongest evidence is if you are taking an antibiotic, um, then taking a specific type of probiotic throughout the duration of your antibiotics Mm -hmm. and for a week after Mm -hmm. has really good um, evidence behind reducing a risk of antibiotic-associated diarrhea, Mm -hmm. which is something that affects around 30% of people who take antibiotics. So Mm -hmm. not to get too, I guess, technical for the listeners, but the probiotic would be Saccharomyces boulardii, Mm -hmm. and you would take that twice a day at the um, dose of 5 billion. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about probiotics, we call them CFU. It's kind of like the unit of measure, colony forming units. Like we talk about protein, we talk about grams, bacteria and microbes, we talk about CFU. Mm -hmm. So it's 5 billion twice a day. So it's very prescriptive, like you would with medication that you prescribe people. And we need to be doing that to get the most out of probiotics. And do you think, uh, like, this is a huge computational uh, issue, right, for a lot of researchers, because depending on the uh, research cohort that they were using, they're going to have different microbiotas, right? And then depending on what strain is being introduced into that microbiota, it's going to have a differing effect. So how do we even start with trying to relate that piece of research to the person in front of you where you basically have no information about any of those different things? That's such a good question. I think it's really important um, and why in the book, again, I've only put the evidence for the ones where there's been a Mm meta-analysis. So a meta-analysis is really where they pull all the individual clinical trials, which look at all different populations, and they pull it together, and they look at the overall benefit. Mm -hmm. Now, if the meta-analysis from that has shown a benefit, then I say, well, there's, you know, a good chance. Now, it's certainly not going to say 100% this probiotic will work for you, um, but there is more of a chance. Now, if there's only just a single study, it is a bit risky, because like you've said, how do you know it's relatable to, you know, different age groups, different environments, etc. In fact, some of our research, um, which we published, I think the end of 2017, maybe, or maybe it was 2018, um, it actually looked at um, whether we could predict whether someone would respond to a probiotic based on a stool sample. So we took a stool sample of people at baseline before they took the probiotic, and then um, using the um, baseline sample, we were able to determine whether someone would respond, um, and that was in a population with irritable bowel syndrome. So there really is a lot to come in in terms of personalizing nutrition and therapies based on the stool, our gut microbiota, um, which is those trillions of bacteria. Um, But 
big, but um, it certainly isn't ready for translation yet. If you were to look into your crystal ball, right, in the future, say 15 years down the line, do you envisage a time where we're going to be doing a stool sample um, in addition to all the other tests that we do prior to prescribing antibiotics where we can predict a whether you're going to respond to this antibiotic and b whether this antibiotic is going to be detrimental to you and what probiotic you should therefore be yeah. taking to mitigate that risk 100 percent. yeah i would even say maybe in the next 10 years oh, really? yeah there's many researchers looking at this now there are companies who've already are claiming um, that they can do that and unfortunately they can't those you know <laughs> algorithms aren't validated just yet okay. but i'm yeah a big believer that definitely in the next 10 years mm. there will be that sort of um yeah personalized approach so for there's a lot of doctors that listen to the podcast right and they often ask me what antibiotics what probiotics i suggest for people with utis or with um uh, traveler's diarrhea or uh, a pneumonia can we put people in buckets according to what condition or uh, um, symptoms they're suffering and then prescribe uh, probiotics on the basis of that? Or does it really depend on that individual? I mean, I'm sure it's the latter, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there obviously is that dependence on the personalization. But when we look at those meta-analysis, if it's been done in a wide population, then we can hedge our bets that, you know, if they want to try it, it's probably worth taking this specific strain at this specific dose. Um, to have that benefit. Um, but yeah, of course, you can't promise that it's yeah. going to completely revolutionize yeah. um, you know, everyone's conditions by taking you know, that probiotic. And on your website, do you have a probiotic sort of guide? Uh, I think I remember from the, the gut yes. health. Is it the gut health? Sorry, the gut health clinic or the gut health doctor.com? So it is theguthealthdoctor.com, okay. but if you put theguthealthclinic.com, it also goes the same oh, as well. Okay. It's very oh, tricky, very <laughs> tricky. Do not worry if you get it wrong. You can't miss it. Um, yeah, so from the book, because again, they made me cut out so many pages, I actually had that probiotic prescription yes. in the book, yeah. and they were like, there's no space, uh -huh. um, along with quite a few other assessments. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've now put it on the website yeah. um, so people can access that. And like I said, they're the main areas where there is good clinical evidence. So I would recommend um, taking the probiotic. And again, I've listed out the strains, the doses, etc. Um, but I think, you know, in the next five years, I think I've only listed about seven conditions. Mm -hmm. Those number of conditions hopefully will be, you know, much more than seven. Well, I think that's a good thing that they made you cut it out, right? Because then that list can now be dynamic and you can add things to it, take things away, etc. So yeah. Well, there was method to the madness. Lining. Yeah, 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 silver lining, absolutely. So um, one of the things that you, uh, w one of the ways in which you described the book, uh, which I thought was really telling, was that this was a safe space in which to discuss gut health because you're aware of sort of the fads and the, the tests that people are promoting that aren't evidence-based. Um, how, how did you even start that sort of that journey I, I guess because there's there's a lot of misinformation out there so you kind of need to be aware of it but then also you know take people on this journey yeah absolutely and I guess you know how I even got into public engagement is really just through frustration so um, after I finished my PhD I moved over to the UK started working at King's where they're you know doing heaps of innovative gut health research and I was like this is amazing I loved it but about a year into my post there, I was like, you know what? It's just, it's just wrong and it's just frustrating. You know, there is so much amazing work that not just my group was doing, you know, all around the world were doing, but it's those fad and potentially dangerous messages that were being, you know, pretty much force fed to the public. And in my clinic, I was seeing, you know, extremes. People had been taking these tests, losing like 20 kilos, really malnourished, super scared to eat anything because they've been told they've got these intolerances. Mm. You know, other people were having, you know, 
huge amounts of these supplements thinking they were going to be good for them and actually kind of started to provoke gut symptoms. So I guess, you know, this organ that I thought had so much power and potential was actually starting to, you know, do some harm to people. It, you know, people weren't really appreciating how beneficial looking after their gut was. So that's when I, you know, got into social media. I was like, what else yeah, do people yeah. do? How else can I have a voice? Yeah. Um, yeah, and then just, you know, through word of mouth, people have really supported me. You've, you know, supported me greatly um, and a heap of the different influences. And then from that, I think I've just, um, you know, at the start, I was terrible with it, you know, trying to do that communication. But I've really started to, I guess, appreciate where people were coming from yeah. and, and that they were really, really struggling and how to kind of, in a non-intimidating way, share the science. Because science can be a little bit like, oh, that's like really boring and yeah. um, I don't think that will relate to me. And, you know, if there's a blogger who talks about this new supplement they've been taking in a really engaging way, yeah. then that's a lot more convincing than me saying there's been a systematic review, yeah. take this. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just about kind of bridging, bridging that gap. And, yeah, over time I, I hope that I've learned to yeah, engage both with the fatty world a little bit because you have to understand what's going on, but also bring that research in a more lay. Level. I think you've you've definitely bridged that really well, and I've noticed that throughout your career actually that you're very engaging at uh, you know showing different messages that, that is has uh, an evidence base behind it. And one of the things I think is quite telling is that people are more inclined to do something in a quick fix way, whereas there's a large proportion of your book that is dedicated to things like um, food intolerances, which I think we should talk about because. Yeah. Um, it was one of my favorite sections of the book because you go into a, enough detail, I should say, not loads of detail, but enough detail to give people the information that they need to know as to whether this is an intolerance or not. And actually even like taking one step back, defining the difference between intolerance and allergy. Yeah. And I, I think that's just so important, you know, the stats suggest that around 20 percent of people are actually excluding things in their diet because they think they've got these in food intolerances and when I actually go through this in clinic most people actually don't they might have you know a low level of irritable bowel syndrome which we would manage in a different way actually not having a super um, restrictive diet so you know that was really important for me to include um, a section on how to safely diagnose a food intolerance at home because those food intolerances um you know online that promise the world actually invalid okay. they'll come back and they'll just tell you all the foods that you've recently eaten. It's, like, it's just so dodgy that can exist. So the only way, the only valid way to diagnose a food intolerance, except for milk sugar intolerance, lactose intolerance, there is um, breath tests for that. But the others is just through this process I call my 3R method. Yeah, yeah. So it is just recording um, everything you're eating alongside your symptoms. And then if you identify a particular culprit, you would then restrict it uh, for around four weeks. And then it's super, super important to reintroduce to make sure that it's not just a coincidence that when you cut it out, actually it was having that benefit. So again, hopefully the flow diagrams really do help. And They really the, do help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking, I was like, oh my God, this is so, I'm thinking of different ways in which to explain it to people as well, yeah. like using these diagrams, yeah. so they're super useful. Um, and I, I think one of the reasons I added gluten in there is again, that's one of the things people cut out. And there's some really good evidence out there to show that people who cut gluten out of their diet and they don't need to. So if they don't have non-celiac gluten sensitivity and they don't have celiac disease, um, if they're cutting it out, actually they have a more um, or a less diverse gut microbiota, which is associated with things like increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, poor weight management, etc. 
So actually, you know, I'm not saying that gluten is amazing. I'm just saying that whole grains that contain some gluten, things like, you know, rye, barley, etc., actually are really beneficial. And if we're not getting that, then we're actually depriving our gut bacteria of different whole grain fibers. Yeah, um, so yeah, I'm really hoping that people will actually go, oh, I can have some of these foods. I don't need to be so restrictive. Absolutely, and I've noticed that actually a lot of patients coming in, they restrict, restrict, restrict to the point where they actually have food and general avoidance and they get very fearful around food. And there's clear the nocebo effect that you actually mentioned in the book as well, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. It creates that vicious cycle. If yes. you, you think, and we've, not me, but the, um, some of our colleagues have done clinical trials yeah. where they have told someone they're either going to get um, the gluten yeah or you know, a fake intervention, mm-hmm. and they, if, because they really believe that they are intolerant to gluten and they made sure they didn't have non-celiac gluten sensitivity or, the, um, or oh, celiac disease. Okay, yeah. um, and what they found is that when they gave people the placebo, the mm-hmm. fake intervention, not gluten, mm-hmm. they actually all complained of gut symptoms okay. because they really believed it. And it's not just you know, all in their head, so to speak, but there is an actual physiological um, mechanism there and that our gut and brain are constantly communicating so they could actually see these people physically bloating mm. so you know even if you do have the physical bloating doesn't necessarily mean that you have that intolerance it is a lot with relaxing that gut brain axis which again is that other section of the book around. exactly yeah it's just a brilliant segue into the other section <laughs> of the book, which is about lifestyle factors mindfulness and even yoga as well yeah which I think is, again, a very necessary part of the whole issue because it's not just a quick dietary fix. In a lot of cases, it's far beyond that. And the the brain is a very powerful thing. Our emotions are a very powerful thing. So I was really pleased to see that you added that as well. Can you talk us through? Yeah, well, because in clinical practice, again, you know, for those listening who might have heard of this low FODMAP diet in Australia, it's become quite a a fad or a trend mm-hmm. and what we know is actually going on a long-term low FODMAP diet is actually really not good for you mm-hmm. it actually changes some of your gut bacteria which the bacteria are beneficial so I don't want people to go on it long term but what people find is if they just cut these FODMAPs out yes their IBS symptoms um, generally resolve but then when they go through the reintroduction process which is hugely important their symptoms come back and then they get scared to reintroduce mm-hmm. now that happens because they haven't really treated the underlying cause. It's not they have an intolerance to these FODMAPs. Mm. It's actually that what we understand IBS now is a dysfunction between the gut and the brain. Mm. So everyone's gut and brain is constantly communicating. In IBS, that communication is dysfunctional. And as a result, they have a very sensitive intestine. Um, so the FODMAPs can trigger that, but as soon as they reintroduce, often the symptoms come back if they don't deal with that dysfunctional gut brain, which is where you know the studies have actually highlighted things like the gut-directed yoga flu and the gut-directed hypnotherapy mm. have equal efficacy to this low FODMAP diet. Yeah. Um, so it's you know for all of my patients, I would never just do diet. It's always got to be an element. If they want long-term benefit, they need it. And I guess it's probably important to highlight that you know, I am a scientist, I am all about the evidence, and I historically thought that yoga and, you know, hypnotherapy is a bit woohoo and yeah, hippy-dippy. Um, but now I've seen the clinical trials and the data, yeah. I'm like, oh my God, I need to, yeah, incorporate this into my clinical practice. So, yeah. 
you know, yeah, I was a skeptic and now I'm converted because there's the evidence there. Oh, that's really nice of you to share that because that, I think that gives us an insight into most scientists' brains. It's like, you know, you need to have a little bit of data there for you to even engage in the subject matter. Yeah. Um, we had Dr. Rabia on a couple of weeks ago who's a neurogastroenterologist at the Wingate Institute yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, she has since become like a proper advocate for yoga and uh, mindfulness breathing and uh, diaphragmatic breathing as yeah, well. Is that one yeah, of, the... of course. That really can help with um, bloating. Yes. In fact, a lot of the bloating, you know, we've actually scanned people's guts and shown that people who have that big distension don't necessarily have more gas in their gut than someone without the distension. It's just that that's a body way of acting to the kind of the sensitive gut in that their um, brain, so they, the messages go up from their gut to their brain to say there's a lot of activity in there and their brain actually pushes down their diaphragm um, and their gut muscles actually relax, re resulting in that distension. So yeah, the diaphragmic breathing can really help reverse that with bloating. So again, bloating's not all about diet, which people kind of think. Exactly, yeah. And I think a lot of people are going to their general practitioners, obviously after excluding red flag symptoms, with the expectation that there is something wrong with their diet and needs to be further investigated yeah. with you know, um, stool tests and bloods and, and everything else. How do you approach, because you, you talk about this in the book, that you've got a whole section on bloating, which yeah. again, like, I'm super excited because I don't think there's any other book out there that's really going for those clinical symptoms that I see as a GP, so now I can start referring people to this book all the time. <laughs> so when you see a patient with bloating, what are the kind of things that you start off with and how do you create this sort of plan for them to try and figure out what the root cause is? Yeah, so again, in the book, I've listed as kind of like the first line strategy the second line and the third line and I, I literally go through as I would in clinical practice so I get people to try out these first line strategies and in the back of the book there is that gut health action plan so I hope people kind of write out themselves I've tried this tick it didn't work or yes this did work this is enough for me so I would get them to have a look at things like you know a symptom and food diary just to make sure it's not a food intolerance firstly um, also things like their stress levels their sleep levels you know, things like um, a lot of those artificial sweeteners actually can trigger bloating because they're low calorie because we can't digest them. So they get into the lower part of the intestine. So they can actually trigger a lot of gut symptoms in people. And, you know, some people are loading on things like these protein bars and yeah. stuff. So as a result, they're having so much of these, which is you take them out, yeah. the symptoms are completely gone. It's as simple as that. Um, and and then, the scary thing is, is that people think they're healthier by going for the high protein options. And unfortunately, they're just not doing the simple thing of reading what's in the ingredients. And yeah. actually, then they'd realize Actually, it's not, not yeah. And even having super large amounts of protein, our body can only absorb certain amounts and the bacteria start to ferment the protein and they don't do very good things with protein. So um, obviously protein is hugely important to get in the diet, but having a really, really high protein diet um, and low fiber diet is actually not good for the gut microbes. So. Yeah. Sorry to segue for a bit, but side tab, I remember you used to work with the Olympic swimming team, is yeah. that right? Synchronized swimming team. Synchronized yeah. swimming team, that's the one. Did you notice any of uh, these sort of effects in them? Because they, I'm assuming they have a high protein diet, or they, they thought they would, they think, yeah, yeah, they yeah, think yeah. they need to have a high protein diet. Yeah, absolutely. Are these things that you kind of came across with them? Yeah. Certainly. And, you know, when I was speaking to them, kind of educating them, actually, you know, looking after their gut microbes can help with their performance. In fact, there's been some evidence highlighting that looking after your microbes or a really diverse range of gut microbes is associated with better performance. Um, so athletic performance, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, you know, I did have to kind of talk to them about that and educate them, kind of get them to think a little bit differently. And you know, a lot of those girls actually had... 
um, a link between the performance anxiety and also their gut issues. Um, so they were kind of already interested around the gut. So it was around changing yeah. um, some of the, what they were having. So yeah, they were still having quite a lot of protein because they needed it yeah. for their really um, high you know, muscle mass, mm -hmm. um, but certainly not as much. And through natural sources, not having a lot of these supplements. Yeah, I think most people have that uh, disorder thinking when they think about uh, diet in general. And there's something that you kind of reframe quite early on in the book where you try and suggest that people should think about feeding your gut microbiome rather than just feeding your muscles or feeding your cells and stuff yeah. so your gut microbes are the ones that are going to be responsible for digesting a lot of your food and yeah. absorption and it's all about you know being less selfish yeah. we are so selfish if you think historically yeah. it's all yeah. about you know like what do I want to eat yeah. um, what's going to be good for my body cells uh -huh. but actually we've got this inner universe of trillions of microbes that do so much for us and if we look after them they will then help us. If we don't look after them, they'll get a little bit grumpy and won't produce the right hormones and vitamins, etc. So, you know, we need to think of our body like that and respect our body, not just for us, but for the microbes that are, are living in it. And, you know, you probably read the, the kind of slightly um, interesting fact that, you know, hu um, humans couldn't survive without these microbes. So it is a bit humbling to the human ego that you know yeah. we need these guys they actually don't really need us yeah. they can survive without yeah. us yeah. um and you know other things like if a female's pregnant you know they really worship their body during that nine month period yeah. and i think well actually we're always growing something inside us we should always be caring about our body and what we're putting into it because that's of that. a really good analogy yeah. i don't even think about that you're always growing something inside of your body so yeah Brilliant. <laughs> so many analogies. So many analogies, yeah. Um, you also talk about uh, metabolomics slightly in, in, the, in the first section of the book as yeah. well. W would you mind explaining exactly what we mean by microbiota and metabolomics? Yeah. So I think that's coming onto a lot of people's mindset now. Like yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a microbiota is the trillions of bacteria and yeast and fungi, parasites, all that sort of thing together, the actual live things. And the metabolome is actually the different chemicals that they're able to produce. So, you know, I mentioned that study where in IBS, we were able to predict whether someone respond um, to the probiotic or not. We actually didn't um, find a link with the bacteria. We found a link with the metabolome. So we looked at these volatile organic compounds so the different metabolites the bacteria produced. And it was that that actually predicted whether someone would respond to the diet or the probiotic or not. And this is a really important point in that the exact same bacteria can actually act very different in different environments. Mm -hmm. Similarly, identical, I mean, very different bacteria can actually do the same things. So that's why I think a lot of these commercial tests are too primitive in that they're looking at just what bacteria are there, mm -hmm. but doesn't actually say a lot. We need to look at the metabolome of what chemicals they're producing, yeah. and what actions they're actually um, yeah. What do you yeah. make of um, some of the commercially available uh, microbiota tests? So Viome is gathering a lot of attention in the US and I yeah. think they're going to start breaking into the UK markets. Yeah, again, I think they're a little bit ahead of their time. Okay. Um, so we just need the science to catch up. And a lot of my patients on Harley Street come with all of these <laughs> tests and I go, look, that is super, super interesting, um, but that's not actually going to change my clinical practice. I would much rather you know, look at your symptoms, look at your diet, look at your lifestyle, and that will be a lot more tailored to you than just looking at what bacteria you have in you. Because yeah. of those points that the same bacteria can act so differently in different environments. Mm -hmm. um, and similarly, the same bacteria, 
different bacteria can do the same thing. Uh, that sort of uh, motto is sort of drilled into us as NHS practitioners. Does it change management? And not only is that pragmatic from a cost point of view, but it's also pragmatic from uh, do no harm and not over investigating point of view as well. Because I think that's what I'm seeing a lot of these days. A lot of people are having genomic tests, microbiota tests, breath tests, food intolerance tests, and it's just, it's uh, sometimes there is a, a case of too much data and not enough doing anything about it because yeah. there isn't anything that was yeah. going to change your management. Yeah, and it creates a lot of health anxiety. So people are coming with like all these red sections going, oh my God, this bacteria is really, really low. Fix it. And I'm like, guys, don't worry. Like you don't actually need that. You've got this one which can do the same things. Um, so yeah, I'm a big believer of that. I do, like there are some evidence-based startups that are starting to to look at this um, and they are actually doing the clinical trials before they go and you know sell to the public which I think is really important so it is coming yeah. um, it's just not quite there yet okay one other thing I want to talk to you about SIBO yes it's like a, a buzzword at the moment everyone appears to have SIBO yes. uh, according to their own would you mind doing a little introduction into what SIBO is and what kind of experiences you've had in clinic as well? Yeah, so SIBO is an acronym which stands for Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth. And essentially, if you think of our digestive tract, which is that nine meter long tube from entry all the way to exit, there's four main sections. So we've got our esophagus, like our food pipe, then we've got our stomach, then we have this long part, which is called our small intestine, which is like six, seven meters, you know, quite a lot of, of room. And then we've got our large intestine, which is the very end part. Now in our large intestine is where the bulk of our gut microbes live. Now with SIBO, it is kind of what it sounds like. Some of the microbes have gone from the large intestine and they've crawled up into the small intestine, which is why it's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, and unlike the large intestine, the small intestines can't really deal with a lot of that extra microbial, you know, fermenting. So when the bacteria and the yeast, etc., eat our food, our fiber that enters the large intestine, they release gas, which is normal, really helpful for many other things. So it's not something to worry about. In the small intestine, it can trigger that sensitivity, the pain, um, bloating and loose stools. Um, now, what we are kind of still trying to get our heads around is the overlap between irritable bowel syndrome and um, SIBO. We kind of don't really know where they, they differ. And the reason for that is a test for SIBO is, is really invasive. Um, so the breath tests are kind of like a, uh, yeah, are not a really strong way to assess it. It's just like a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. People can do these breath tests and then also look at their symptoms, but it's not black and white. Yeah. Um, what you need to do is actually go into the small intestine and get a sample, then test it for the different bacteria, look at the profiling, etc. So that's really invasive. So it's, it's quite difficult to determine that. But the important thing coming back to how, how does it relate to clinic is my clinical practice and what I would say um, is actually quite similar, whether it's irritable bowel syndrome or SIBO. So people don't really need to go and pay for all these expensive tests. Um, if it is SIBO though, and we go through the diet and the diet aspects don't really work, then there is some decent evidence for a specific type of antibiotic, Rifaximin, um, which is very specific um, for the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and it's thought to be not as detrimental. Now, if people were to take that, there's also good evidence to add in some fiber. So um, the guar gum fiber, there's been a, a clinical trial supporting that. So yeah, I think, it is an area where there's a lot more research needing to be done. Yeah. Um, and I think we'll look at diet first. And if people don't respond to that diet and they do have very um, you know, loose stools 
and a lot of bloating, um, then I would probably consider whether we need to explore whether it's SIBO. But also things like bile SML absorption is also really, really common um, and people have IBS diarrhea predominant. Around that one study showed around 30% of people actually have um, bile SML absorption as the cause of that and they actually don't have IBS yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah I think we need in that space we actually do need to do a lot more um, yeah and I think you know the diagnosis even though it's helpful in terms of directing management there's so many overlapping features as well and I'm sure like you know a lot of the studies wouldn't even consider the anxiety the stresses and all the other lifestyle factors that can be impacting the reason why they might be experiencing the symptoms too yeah. and the patients that I've had who have been diagnosed with SIBO have always gone down the sort of gastroenterology route they've had the endoscopy they've been put in Rifaximin. I didn't know about the guar gum uh, additive yeah. actually yeah. until I read the book. Yeah, but with um, Rifaximin, a lot of them relapse um, yes. after like four yes. months because they haven't treated the underlying issue of why the bacteria yeah. are crawling up. Mm. And a lot of that can be, you know, stress or whether actually they've got an underlying condition like diabetes and that's not well managed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the gut movement uh, processing is not quite right. What are your opinions on high sugar diets and SIBO and whether sugar is in some way related to SIBO? Because I think there is this underlying belief out there, at least on the blogosphere, that yeah. the two are Look, inextricably yeah. related. You know, there's many different types of sugar to start with, but if we're talking about table sugar, mm. um, table sugar is absorbed really high up our intestine, so it doesn't really get down to where the bacterial overgrowth has occurred. But what we do know is that people who have really high processed, high sugar diets actually don't get much fiber. Mm. So it's not necessarily the sugar per se that's evil, mm. it's the fact that actually they're not getting the fiber, they're not nurturing the gut microbes, yeah. and that's kind of the cause. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that it's quite hard to even myself to explain to people because they just want the short answer, should I be eating sugar or should I not be eating sugar? Whereas it's a whole load of gray out there. It's a, exactly. It? Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you know, it helps you saying, yeah, don't eat too many treats, yeah. then fine. Even yeah. though that's actually not the real mechanism. It's just, you can have treats, you just got to add the fiber and have that boringly balanced diet yeah, yeah, um, yeah. to look after your gut. Now, you know, with SIBO, there's also in that low FODMAP diet, um, there are certain types of sugars like fructose, so fruit sugar. So if people are having large amounts of fruit sugar, it's absorbed slightly lower down and we're not as efficient at absorbing it. Um, so if we think someone has SIBO, then having, you know, high amounts of fruit um, is not great. Still certainly can have some fruit. It's just, you know, 80 grams of portion three times a day rather than, you know, eating the whole blueberry basket and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, it is a tough job being an academic influencer and trying to distill all these messages. But honestly, and I'm not just saying this, your book does a fantastic job of that. It's rich of information, but it's not overwhelming and it's very, very easy to read. And all those extra sort of uh, things that you've got on your website as well, make sure we link to in the show notes. Um, but thank you very much for doing it, honestly. It's a, it, I, can, I can tell why it took you so long to write as well, because there's so much in there. Thank you, it means a lot coming from you, Rupi. <laughs> you can find my wonderful guest dr megan at theguthealthdoctor.com where you find lots more information about her new book but tons of extra resources that she's put in there for people who have the book as well which i think is fantastic Instagram, The Gut Health Doctor, Facebook, again the same, The Gut Health Doctor, and Twitter, The Gut Health Doc. Make sure you get a copy of this book. Honestly, it's going to be one of those books that I refer to patients all the time. It's a fantastic guide for anyone looking to improve their gut health and even explain some symptoms as well. 
And as always, you can find this information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com. Subscribe to the newsletter for weekly recipes, content and much more to help you live the healthiest, happiest life. Give us a five-star rating if you like this pod. It really helps spread the love and the message. Make sure you get social with us. Doctors underscore kitchen is the tag. And you can find us on Instagram, YouTube. And of course, don't forget to order a copy of my book as well, Eat to Be Illness and The Doctor's Kitchen. For now, I will see you later. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 